0: Mark 16 is our passage this morning, and I listened to another sermon on it this week. And at that church, they did something that I thought was kind of fun, so I would like to do it this morning. When we get together on Resurrection Sunday, I usually begin the service with a statement, He is risen. And you respond with... Okay. Okay. Exactly. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. So as we approach this passage on the resurrection today, yes, I know it's December. Yes, it's Advent or Christmas season or whatever you would want to, to call that. We're celebrating the incarnation at this time of year. But this morning, we're going to celebrate the resurrection. So anytime you hear me say, He is risen. Thank you. You're going to have to be a little faster than that. Anytime you hear me say, He is risen. He is risen throughout this passage throughout this sermon i would like you to respond that way and just the way you did right then i would like you to sound excited about the resurrection because that's at least as exciting as the football game you watched yesterday be as excited as you are about your favorite sports team about the resurrection because this matters for eternity right so that's what we're going to do this morning when i say he is risen you're going to say (laughs) excellent let's stand i'm going to read our passage eight verses this morning this is Mark 16, 1 through 8. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, and they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, how wonderful your word is to us. How blessed the hope of the resurrection. And Lord, as we consider these truths this morning, for they are truths, By your Holy Spirit, make them real to us. Make them fresh to us. We've read, or at least heard, the Gospel of Mark before. We've read the other Gospels. We know how the story ends, but they didn't. Help us, by your Holy Spirit, to put ourselves in the story today. Help us to know how you want each one of us to respond to this good news. Holy Spirit, anoint me as I preach this aspect of the gospel this morning, that it would be clear. And that we would all have hearts and minds that are ready to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. You can probably guess the key phrase for today. The key phrase for today is he is risen. Today we're going to talk about the resurrection from Mark 16, but before we begin, I'd like to talk about what that phrase means. What does it mean that he resurrected? During his earthly ministry, Jesus raised at least three people from the dead. The widow of Nain's son, that's in Luke 7, Jairus' daughter, that's in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, and then Lazarus, that's in John 11. So at least three people Jesus raised from the dead. So how is Jesus' resurrection different from people like that? Exactly. His resurrection is different because we could call those other ones resuscitations. Because when he said, little girl, arise, she woke up, she came back. She was dead. He brought her back to life, but she continued to live however long she lived in that same body. And she eventually died died jesus was different in that when he came back to life he was in a resurrected a glorified body and just as importantly he never died again 40 days after the resurrection he ascended to god the father in heaven but jesus never died and will never die again amen you with me So, the question I want us to ask and answer this morning is why does the resurrection matter? So, what? What difference does it make that Jesus rose again? And the main point, what I want you to grasp, what I want you to think about as we study this short eight verse section today, is that the resurrection demands a response. The resurrection of Jesus Christ demands a response from you and you and you and anyone joining us online, from every person. So let's go back to verse 1 and work our way through. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. It says the Sabbath was passed. According to law and custom, tradition, They waited until sundown on Saturday. And then stores would have reopened wherever they had to go to purchase these spices they needed to care for Jesus' body so that they could go to the tomb first thing on Sunday morning. Who are these three women? I hope if you've been here the last couple weeks, these names are familiar to you. These women were the last at the cross and the first to the tomb. Same three females we saw in Mark 15, verse 40. They were looking on from afar, as Jesus died. Two of them, the ones who were named Mary, were also there to witness Joseph and Nicodemus putting Jesus into the tomb. Now I wanna stop and clarify something, because one of my family members, when we got home for lunch last week, asked me a question, I thought it was a good one. In my sermon, I had made a big deal out of the necessity of two or three witnesses. You heard me say that a few different times. At that time, in that culture, You had to have two or three witnesses to establish a fact. And the question I got was, if women weren't allowed to testify in a court of law back then, and they weren't, then what difference does it make that there were two or three women? And I think that's a good question. It also tells me that I wasn't very clear. So I'm going to try again. My intention was not to suggest that anyone had to testify in a court of law about this. But rather to point out that God very carefully orchestrated the events recorded and recorded them for our benefit so that two or more people were present to witness the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And I believe that God made that point extra clear by allowing women who were not treated well in that time and that culture to be the first witnesses of the empty tomb and later the risen Christ. Now, it says that these three women bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Touched on this last week also. The Jews did not embalm, they did not mummify dead bodies. Instead, they placed aromatic oils, that's what we could call them, in the linen wrappings around the body. The purpose was to show respect for the body and prevent it from smelling as bad as soon. That's basically all that they were accomplishing, but it was a a way to show respect in the Jewish culture. Verse 2 continues, Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. If we compare this to John chapter 20, if we put these phrases together, he's not being redundant, I think he's being specific. I believe what happened is that they set out while it was still dark and arrived at the tomb just after daybreak. Why would they do that? Why didn't they go after they bought the spices the night before? Because tombs, generally speaking, are dark. At least I would imagine, not that I've been in. But you've been in caves, you've been in caverns perhaps. It's dark, and they need to have some light in order to attend to Jesus' body. So very early in the morning, set out when it was dark, the sun is just coming up, it's daybreak when they get there, and it says, on the first day of the week. Let's be very clear about that point. Jesus rose on a Sunday. See, how do you know that? Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20 all say it was the first day of the week. They came to the tomb on the first day of the week. He had said he was going to rise the third day. Now, what time did he rise? I don't know, but it was on the third day of the week. He rose on Sunday. That is why we gather together to worship on Sunday. There's nothing wrong with gathering a different time When we get to January, we're going to have Wednesday night youth and children's ministries, Lord willing. We can gather other times during the week, but it is important that we gather on Sunday because that is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Every time we gather together, including right now today, when we gather together in this place on Sunday, we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is why the church gathers. Jews had worshiped every day, but on Saturday. There are people who want to worship Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The day is not so important, but we gather on Sunday on purpose because we are recognizing the truth that Jesus Christ is risen. That's what we're celebrating. That is what we're doing when we gather on Sunday. Granted, we should be worshiping every day of the week. That's not what I'm saying. But when we gather corporately, we do it on Sunday, and that's why. They came to the tomb. The women either didn't know, or didn't understand, or didn't remember, or simply didn't believe Jesus' earlier predictions that he would rise on the third day. Now in the Gospel of Mark itself, I'm going to share four passages with you. You could do a fifth, but four are very clear that Jesus was speaking, and he was speaking to some of his disciples about rising again. First one, Mark 8. And if you've been here for the series, I hope these are going to sound like familiar verses because we've touched on them multiple times. Mark eight thirty one. he's speaking to the 12. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, did those first things in the verse happen? What does it say? He must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Have all of those things happened as we've read the Gospel of Mark? Yes, they have. Should we, as the reader, expect that he's going to rise again? Yes, and they should have as well. The next chapter, Transfiguration, Mark 9, verses 9 and 10. He's speaking to and with the, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man, who's that? Jesus, had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising of the dead meant. They didn't understand it, but had he told them? Yes. Should they have expected it? Yes. Continuing in the same chapter, speaking to all the disciples, verse 31, for he taught his disciples and said to them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. Did that happen? Yes. And they will kill him. Did that happen? And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. He tells them when it will happen. Third time that he's talking to all of them. Fourth time that I'm giving you. Mark 10, verses 33 and 34, speaking to all the disciples. Verse 33. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. Now, did those things happen? <laughs> We're going up to Jerusalem. That happened. Betrayed into the chief priests and the scribes. Yeah, that happened. They will condemn him to death. Yes, that happened. They will deliver him to the Gentiles. Yes, That happened. Going on verse 34, they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. Did those things happen? And the third day, he will rise again. He predicted it. He told them when. He said, I will rise again. Now, there's something else going on that the women probably didn't know. The women likely didn't know that the chief priests and Pharisees had gone to Pilate on Saturday and received a Roman guard, that's 16 soldiers, to seal the tomb and to keep it secure. You can read about that on your own in Matthew 27. Verse 3, back in Mark, and they, that's the women, said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? I don't know why they hadn't thought about it till they were on the way, but it was the, the verb tenses they're talking about it. They're back and forth. How are, how are we going to do this? What are we going to do? As you compare the different gospel accounts, there were probably more than three women there. But even if it was half a dozen women, there are how many guards? 16? And they're guarding the tomb, and the stone, I don't know where people get this, but multiple sources kept saying it was a two-ton stone. It was, it was heavy, okay? It was heavier than they would have been able to roll out of the way. Who will open the door of the tomb for us? Who will move the stone? Verse 4, But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. The stone had been rolled away. Matthew tells us more about that. An angel rolled away the stone before the women arrived. But also understand that he didn't do this in order to let Jesus out. You can look it up in Luke 24, John 20. Both record that Jesus in his resurrected body could pass through walls and doors. So the tomb was no problem for Jesus. But the angel removed the stone so that the women and later the other disciples could enter the tomb and see that Jesus' body was gone. Verse five. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. A young man. You think, what is that? Why is there a a young man sitting in a tomb? Well, we understand Mark is describing an angel. Often angels are described as a man, a young man, and that's what Mark is doing here. So this is an angel, maybe, don't know, maybe it was the same angel who had rolled away the stone and then sat on it in Matthew 28. This is a seeming discrepancy in the gospel accounts because Matthew and Mark say there was one angel, Luke and John say there were two angels. Well, if there were two, there was definitely one. But it seems like Matthew and Mark are focused on the one who's speaking. And that's the one Mark is talking about here, a young man. This is the one speaking. And how does it say he's dressed? Clothed in a long white robe. His clothing suggests that he was a visitor from heaven, not just any old young man sitting in the tomb. The statement is similar to the way Mark described Jesus' clothes at the transfiguration. This is Mark 9, verse 3. His, that is Jesus' clothes, became shining, exceedingly white. That's the same Greek word. Exceedingly white is in Mark 9. Like snow, such as no launder on earth can whiten them. Parallel account in Luke 24, verse 4, describes the angel's clothes as shining garments. That word for shining means dazzling, and it's also used to describe lightning. As I read that, I think that means that the angel's garments glowed. And that was convenient, because what did we say about tombs a minute ago? Tombs are dark. They waited till daylight so they could see. Well, they didn't need a flashlight. They didn't need to pull out their phone and shine a light in the tomb, because there seems to have been plenty of light from the angel's clothes. And that's important, because he's about to invite them to examine the otherwise dark tomb. How did they respond to that? They were amazed, is what our new King James has for us right there, which is totally fine. But I'm gonna give you some alternate synonyms, some alternate translations for this word amazed. Uh, Alarmed, amazed, astonished, astounded. Amplified Bible says bewildered, terrorized. Someone else said awed and agitated. Are you getting the idea? They're awestruck. They can't believe it. They don't know what to do with this information. There is a glowing person in this tomb. That is not what. I, first off, we didn't know how the stone was going to be rolled away, and now we're in here. I don't know about this. Verse six. But he said to them, "I love this. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen." Oh, y'all went to sleep. He is, he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Do not be alarmed. Literally means stop being amazed. There's that word, amazed, alarmed, terrified. And I'm pretty sure that if there's a handbook for angels, that this is one of the first rules. Because any time in the scriptures, pretty much that you see an angel showing up, the person is scared to death. And what does the angel say? Almost the very first thing that every angel says, Old Testament and New Testament, is fear not, don't be afraid, or stop being amazed. I don't know how often it worked, but that's what they're supposed to say right off the bat. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. This is very specific. I know we're just reading this, we're familiar with this, we know what the angel said. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified there would have been other people named Jesus. Jesus was a common name. There are those books and surveys and things that say, this is the most common ten names for boys and girls this year. Well, Joshua and Jesus are the equivalents. They would have been very common at that time. So he's more specific. He says, Jesus of Nazareth. But guess what? There were probably additional people named Jesus who were from Nazareth. So he adds one other statement that makes it very clear who was crucified? Because they were seeking Jesus of Nazareth, who had been crucified, and whose body two of them had watched Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus place in that very tomb. A lot of people over the centuries have sought to debunk the resurrection. But the stories that the religious leaders then and other people since then have made up to explain away Jesus' resurrection don't hold up. Last week I mentioned that Jesus was most definitely dead. The centurion confirmed that fact, like a death certificate. He was dead, so swoon theory, fainting, coma, none of that works. The women didn't get the tomb wrong. Two of them had watched Joseph and Nicodemus put Jesus in that specific tomb. Now, as you look at Matthew, the religious leaders told the soldiers to tell everybody that the disciples had come while they were asleep and stolen the body away. That was what was widely reported. There's a problem with that. Where were the disciples, as best we can tell? They were hiding. Even if Peter was with them, that's 11. And how many soldiers were there? 16. So at most, 11 of them who are scared to death, they would never have tried to overpower or sneak past 16 armed Roman guards. What's more, the guards would not all have fallen asleep. History tells us that if one of those 16 guards fell asleep and was caught by a superior officer, all 16 of them could be crucified, sorry, not crucified because they were Romans, they would have been executed. So they all could have died if one of them had fallen asleep. And for this to, to play out, the coward at this point, disciples who are hiding, would have had to have come and rolled away the stone, carried Jesus' body, while 16 soldiers are all asleep. That's just not realistic. Now, could you check out the verb tenses with me for a second? I mean, past tense versus present tense. The angel speaking about Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, and he was. But what does he say then? He is, he, is he is risen. This is the gospel in three words, at least in English, because in Greek it's one word. And this is the good news about Jesus. In fact, this is the best news ever. This is the best thing I can tell you about today. The words the Greek word, can be translated either he arose, which is obviously true, or he was raised, which is also true. We know from parallel accounts in the rest of the New Testament that God the Father accomplished the resurrection of Christ. And we can go to Romans and see that the Spirit was involved as well. The resurrection of Jesus proves That God the Father had accepted the sacrifice of Jesus the Son, and that redemption was complete and sufficient. So I'm coming back to my question that I brought up at the beginning Why does the resurrection matter? And for that, I would encourage you, I'm going to read several verses from 1 Corinthians 15. So keep your finger there in Mark. We're going to come back and finish out. But let's look at some verses in 1 Corinthians 15. What's our question? Why does the resurrection matter? Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, he's writing to believers, and starting in verse 3, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. So what's the information that he received from the Lord himself? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, to fulfill what we would call the Old Testament, according to the scriptures, verse 4, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. We've looked at that before, Those are verses you should be very familiar with. That is the definition of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. If you're going to share the gospel with somebody, you should include those three things, those three facts. And all of that took place according to the scriptures. It took place to fulfill what was prophesied. I'm in verse 5. And that he was seen by Cephas. That's another name for Peter then by the twelve, the group of disciples. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. He's not talking about sleep there. He's saying that at the time of that writing to the church at Corinth, of the 500 people who saw the resurrected Christ at one time, many of them were still alive, but some of them had died. That's what he's saying. After that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, verse 7. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, Paul was saying, as by one born out of due time. Now, we're not in that passage to preach through it, so I'm going to keep going. But the point is, there are lots of people who saw the risen Christ. Lots of testimony. 500 at one time. Skip to verse 12. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So he's saying if if we're preaching that Christ has risen and you're saying that nobody ever will rise from the dead, how does that play out? What does that look like? It's the same question we're trying to ask and answer. Why does the resurrection matter? Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If there is no resurrection, Christ cannot have been raised from the dead. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, it's vain. And your faith also is empty, it's vain. There's no point to it. We are in deep trouble. And by the way, there's no point in us being here or me getting up here and preaching if there's no resurrection, if Christ did not rise from the dead. Verse 15. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. There are times, and this is one of those passages, where where Paul's getting really fancy with his words and you can get lost if you're not paying attention. But the point is, if Christ did not rise, we're in trouble and I'm a false witness and so is he and all this is pointless and we should go home. Verse 16, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. Pointless, powerless. You are still in your sins. If Christ is not raised, we're going to hell. That's what he's saying. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who were trusting in Christ for salvation with the hope of a future resurrection, the hope of eternal life, they're, they're in hell. They've perished. If in this life only, verse 19, we have hope in Christ, we are all men most pitiable. If this is all we get, it's nice to have loving relationships with other Christians. It's nice to gather and sing songs and pray. But if that's all we get, it's not very much. That's what he's saying in comparison with eternal life. And if I can tell on myself for a minute, I was copying and pasting verses, and I came back to my sermon yesterday, and I realized that I had stopped there at verse 19. That's not a good place to stop. Because look at verse 20. Can we read this out loud, please? But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is risen. He is... Thank you. He is risen. And what does that mean for us? It means that he's the first one, that we have the hope of eternal life, that we have the hope of a resurrection body because he is the first fruits. He is the first example. Prototype would be a similar idea. He's the first one. Everything rises and falls on the resurrection of Jesus. Everything I get up here and preach. Everything that you, by your own testimony, believe, it falls apart if Jesus did not rise. The resurrection of Christ proves that he is the Son of God because that fulfills the Old Testament prophecy that the Holy Holy One would not see corruption. That's Psalm 16, the prediction that the Son of God would not. See, corruption, what does that mean? Well, he rose again the third day. He came back to life, received his resurrection body. That is a fulfillment that he is the Son of God. So the resurrection proves that he's the Son of God. The resurrection of Christ proves that God the Father has accepted his Son's sacrifice. Romans 1.4. Maybe you've heard this illustration that the crucifixion was the payment, but the resurrection is the receipt. It is the proof that God the Father was satisfied, that the debt, our price of sin, our due was paid in full. As we just read in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel itself is dependent on the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is proof of our justification. Romans 4.25, we worked through that at Easter a couple years ago, that we are raised because of his justification. We are justified because he rose again. The hope of our own resurrection is dependent on his resurrection. We just read that in 1 Corinthians 15. You can also see it in 1 Corinthians 4.14, talking about he is going to bring back to life at the rapture. Those who are asleep, dead in Christ, they will rise first. He's going to give them resurrection. He's going to give us a new body. He's going to bring us back to life, and that is dependent on His own resurrection. Here's something else. What is Jesus doing right now? You know He's at the right hand of the Father. What does He do? He intercedes. He prays for us, He is our advocate, He is our defense attorney. How does a dead person do that? The resurrection is required for Him to do the things He said He would do on our behalf, ministering for us and to us even now. Does the resurrection matter? We could go on a long time, I'm sure. Many of you could add to what I just gave. It matters. Without the resurrection, we're sunk. But my main point, what I want you to take with you this morning, is that the resurrection demands a response. How did these women respond? What is the first response that the angel asks of them? We're still in verse 6. See the place where they laid him? He's saying, come take a look. Check it out. Please understand, God is not put off by your questions. If you're struggling to understand or believe the resurrection, he's saying, investigate. Search the scriptures. Ask me in prayer. He's happy to answer our questions because he can take it and he can answer them. And that's basically what the angel was saying. Come check it out and you're going to find he is not here. What's the second response the angel asks? Verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. When I was in high school, we had a history teacher. I was in ninth grade. Interesting guy. and and he had a different way that he would address us. He thought it was very funny. If a few of us guys were in the room ahead of class, and he walked in, he'd say something like, gentlemen, Bob. And by that, he was seeking to exclude. It wasn't just me. He'd do it to random people. But he was excluding you from the group. Gentlemen, Bob, suggesting Bob is not one of the gentlemen. Is that what the angel's message is doing right here? Is that what God's saying? Disciples, Peter, Peter. Not at all. I think this is including Peter. I think what's going on here is that Peter was despondent. The last thing we read about Peter was that he went out and wept bitterly. And I'm sure he had had a rough few days. He had probably wept bitterly many tears. And he probably was thinking thoughts like we sometimes do, but God would never let me come back. He's done with me. He's finished with me. I I could never hope that he would forgive me. So what does God do? Sends an angel, and he says, go and tell the disciples and Peter, include Peter. Let him know he's still very much included. He's one of my disciples. I have plans for him. We know that Jesus forgave Peter for denying him. How do we know that? Because Luke 24 and 1 Corinthians 15 tell us that Jesus met with Peter individually. We don't really have details of that. But what we do have is when he restored him publicly, and you can read that on your own in John 21, he had big plans for Peter. And the know-it-all, tell-it-all leader-disciple apparently needed to be taken down a few notches. And this humble, new and improved Peter was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit to preach one of the most significant sermons, if not the most significant sermon in history. And God was going to use him because God forgives and God restores. We're still in verse 7. But go... Tell his disciples and Peter, what? That he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Jesus had predicted that he would go before his disciples to Galilee. This is Mark 14, 28. But after I have been raised, there it is again, after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. That's where he planned to meet them. Now we know, we've read the other accounts, he met them first in Jerusalem and then in Galilee. And then we also know from Acts that he returned to Jerusalem prior to ascending to heaven. Now when you look at Mark fourteen twenty-eight, I underline for you, I will go before you. Because in a passage like this, these eight verses, I can't help but make he is risen the key phrase. You can't pick a different one. That is it. But this is a second one that's very significant, I believe. And it's that he will go before you. He is going before you. And some of you may need that reminder today. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. What does the shepherd do? He leads his sheep. He protects his sheep. He provides for his sheep. And that's what he's doing here. That's what God the Father has been doing all morning. Because those women, when they came to the tomb, they're saying, who's going to move the stone for us? Well, God had gone before them. He went before them. He took care of it. He was going before them to Galilee. He was expecting them to come and eventually they did. Because he had some more training. He had some more things he wanted to teach them. He wanted to appear to 500 people we know in Galilee. And he may be leading some of you. There may be something really challenging right now in your life. But if he's your shepherd, he will go before you. He will be there with you. He will provide for you, he will protect you. Because he is the good shepherd. The angel asked them to come and see and then go and tell. What did they do? Verse 8. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Is that what you were expecting to read next? It's not what I would expect either. Matthew, the same way. There's that one little phrase, but some doubted. It's a reality check. We tend to be fearful. Let's be honest, we tend to be disobedient. We tend to be slow when we're commanded to do something. It says, They trembled and were amazed. Their bodies were trembling and their minds were spinning. Other translations say that astonishment overwhelmed them or that they were bewildered. And how did they respond? They said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. At least for today, and we'll talk more about it next time, this is sort of a cliffhanger ending. Did they obey? Did they not obey? Did they tell anybody? Did they not tell anybody? Well, obviously, they eventually told somebody because we're reading about it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke told us about it. So Mark may have meant that they didn't tell anyone at first or that they didn't stop to tell anyone on their way to tell the disciples. Here's some additional details from those parallel accounts. Matthew 28, "...so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy." and ran to bring the disciples' word. Luke 24 says, Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So it's not that they never told. Obviously they did. It may have been a little bit of time or maybe they didn't stop to tell it to anybody else on the way. Don't know. But they were overcome with emotion. That much we know. Matthew says joy, ecstasy, and fear. Remember we talked about Joseph last week? That love overcomes fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Does that sound familiar? I think that happened for them too. They loved Jesus. How do you know that? Because they came to take care of the body. They certainly loved him. They had been there at the cross. They were there, two of them, when he was buried in the tomb. Three or more of them came to take care of his body on that Sunday morning. They loved him and eventually that overcame the fear that they were sensing right then. Now, I just read for you in Matthew and Luke that they went and they told the 11. How'd the 11 respond? And when the women told the disciples, they didn't believe them at first. That's Luke 24, verse 11. And what's more, they didn't obey either. What had the angel said for them to do? Go and tell the the women. Sorry, I need to give you an object there. What did the angel tell the women to tell the disciples? Go meet me in Galilee. And did they do that? (laughs) Not at first. That delayed the obedience thing. Because we know from John's account that Sunday evening, he met with them. The following Sunday, they were there with Thomas. So at least eight days elapsed before they obeyed and went to Galilee. But they did. They did eventually go as he had instructed them. So, what are you going to do with this good news? It may seem hard to understand. It may seem difficult to believe. And you may be afraid to tell anyone. But we are nevertheless commanded to tell everyone. Will you go and tell? Main idea, the resurrection of Jesus Christ demands a response. It demanded a response of them, of the women, and then of the disciples. And it demands a response of everyone here. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, call on him today. Because maybe some of this is new to you, but he's inviting you to come and see. As, As the angel told the women, come look. You're not going to find his body. It's gone. And as you check this out, as you see what God's word says about Jesus and his crucifixion to pay the penalty for our sin and his death and burial and resurrection, he will show you the Holy Spirit will illumine your mind. But you have to respond. You are invited to respond. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, what? That God has raised him from the dead. The resurrection matters, folks. When I read that verse, this is a heaven or hell issue. We can discuss, I believe it was seven literal days, that God created the world. We can talk about end times. We can talk about lots of finer points. But we have to agree on the resurrection. Jesus died and rose. And this tells me that if I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, what will happen? You will be saved. If I believe that God raised him from the dead, I will be saved. If you believe this, you're saved. If you don't believe this, you're not. Believers. How will you respond to this today? He told the women, "Go and tell." <coughs> Who are you go tell? Who are you going to go tell? Who is in your mind right now that oh that neighbor, that friend, that coworker, that person at the grocery store. That's the person on my mind. I need to go tell that person this week. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes? All I would ask is that you do what God is leading you to do. You say, but I'm scared. Yes, so are the women. So are the men. Is there anyone here this morning who would say, I'm believing on Jesus for the first time today. This is the first time that's clicked with me, and I am believing on the risen Christ. He is my Savior. I'm praying to him today to save me. Is there anybody who would say that this morning? Is there anyone who would say, Bob, there's somebody on my heart right now, and I'm praying for that person, and I I believe that the Holy Spirit is leading me. I need to talk to that person. Yes? 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 Yes, yes, yes. We need to go and tell folks. I do too. Father, would you please give us courage? Would you please calm our hearts? Some of us may be trembling. Some of us may be filled with fear, very anxious over the thought of talking to somebody, trying to initiate a spiritual conversation. And yet, Lord, that's exactly what you've commanded us to do. And we know from acts that spirit-filled people talk about Jesus. So, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you drive away our fear out of love for you and love for our fellow people and use us today and this week to share the good news about you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.